Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and I'm doing today's show a little bit differently because there was big news in the travel industry that I wanted to just discuss with you all first before we went to the guests. There is an organization known as the Airline Reporting Corporation. If you've heard me talk, you've heard me talk about them in the past. They are a massive player in the travel industry, which is funny because nobody knows about them. But basically, they act as the middlemen between all of the airlines worldwide and pretty much all of the travel agencies. And when I say travel agencies, I'm talking about the bricks and mortars one that you go to or you used to go to in the past to book a trip. And, and many people still go to them. Uh, but I'm also talking about Expedia, Orbitz, Travelocity, etc. All of the online travel agents too. These folks are the middlemen. They every year team up with Expedia to do a study. They look at the airline transactions for a certain eight-month period uh, in the year that just passed to see if they could find any patterns. And interestingly, for the last four years, they've seen one pretty definitive pattern. They have found that people who purchased their tickets on a Sunday this has been the same for the last four years, different before that, but for the last four years, this is held. Those who purchase their tickets on a Sunday pay significantly less, statistically speaking, so not in every case, but statistically, than those who book on other days of the week, specifically than those who book on Fridays, which is the most pricey day to purchase tickets. So how much less? It depends on whether or not you're booking a domestic or an international ticket. This year, the difference for domestic tickets wasn't that much. It was 5% better booking on a Sunday for domestic. However, if you book an international flight and you do it on a Sunday as compared to a Friday, that's when the big savings come in. You, you can save 15%. Now, you're not going to save that amount of money if you try and book the night before you're flying. The airlines know they've got you then. So this study also looked at what windows were best. They found that people who book at least a month out do far better than those who book closer to the date you're flying. How much better? Again, it, it, it varies by domestic or international trips. For domestic trips, people who book specifically within 28 to 35 days of travel saved the most money. For international travel, and this was a stunner, I thought, they found that those people who booked six months in advance of travel paid the most, uh, sorry, not paid the most, paid the least uh, amount of money. How much less? About 15%, which I think is a significant savings. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if that six months holds. I actually think that that's a quirk of the pandemic uh, because the airlines were so desperate to get 
international travel up to speed, especially in January and February of 2022, which was part of the period that was studied. They were so desperate to get those seats filled that they didn't do what they've done in years past, which is hold back the better prices until a little closer to travel. The airlines are looking at the psychology of the traveler, and usually they're thinking, okay, if they're booking six months out, these people really want to travel. We're going to charge them, you know, through the nose for what they're doing. Not not right now, I think. So I'm not sure if it's going to be better to book that far in advance uh, in the coming year. That's that's a part of the study that that I'm I'm a little bit on the fence about. Now, in terms of what day to fly, that was a solid Wednesday. <laughs> I I have to think this has to do with the downtick in business travel. Uh, that you're seeing more people traveling just for pleasure. And so those people probably don't want to leave in the middle of the week. They're going to leave closer to the weekend so they can work right up to the day that they're traveling. And they're not traveling as much for business as they were in the past. But big savings for those who fly or start their vacation on a Wednesday. Now this year, of course, it wasn't just about saving money. This year, there was chaos at the airports and in the skies, and a lot of people found themselves either delayed or dealing with canceled flights. So for the first time, the Airline Reporting Corporation and Expedia also looked at that, and they came out with a pretty shocking statistic. They found that people who flew after 3 p.m., were 50% more likely to experience either a delay or a cancellation. That's a big uptick. Um, why is that? It, it has to do with the fact that if you fly earlier in the day, you know, especially if you go on the first flight of the day, you know that your plane has been in the airport overnight. It's not going to be dealing with weather to get to you. As well, you know that your crew has been in your home city overnight, and that's big. The more times the plane has to take off and land, the more times things can go wrong. As well, we know that in the past, Weather systems tend to get worse as the day goes on. I'm not a meteorologist, so I can't really explain that. But we know that the delays and cancellations build up, probably because you have planes zigzagging across the country, uh, going from airport to airport, picking up people in each airport. And the more times you have to involve different weather patterns from different hubs, uh, the more likely you are to introduce problems into uh, the equation. So just wanted to bring that all to your attention. You can read my article about all that uh, on fromers.com. And now let's get to our guest, who is a total charmer.
National Geographic has a wonderful new book out. It's called Food Journeys of a Lifetime, 500 Extraordinary Places to Eat Around the Globe. To help me discuss the book, I have Glenn Mutel, who's a humble guy. He said that he's the leader of the team that put together this book. Well, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Glenn. Hi, Pauline. Lovely to be here. And I got to ask you, how big was your team? I mean, this is a massive book. Oh well, we're we're a we're a reasonable sized team. You know, there's a, a lot of not not as big as you might imagine, but there's a lot of residual knowledge amongst these people. And you know, with something like this, the people involved are never starting from scratch. So it's uh, it's an endeavour, but not quite the endeavour you think it might be. You know. Sure. Well, like most National Geographic books, it's photo rich. And I felt on this one, I learned so much. I kept flipping through the book uh, last night as I was prepping for this interview and uh, learned things about cities that I, I thought I knew inside and out, like Paris. There's a lot in this book, not surprisingly, it is food of a lifetime about Paris. But I didn't know that the president of France has a stake in who the best baker in Paris is. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about baguettes in Paris? Well, I mean, I'm a I'm a sucker for bread in all its form. And I love baguettes. I love the fact that they're not designed to be kept. I love the fact that you they're supposed to be baked, consumed, and then disposed of. You know, they're not supposed to last. They have to be fresh. But there's a competition in Paris um, for each year um, to see who the best baker of baguettes is. Um, and the the prize is to is to supply the presidential palace for a year, so it's a real yeah. kind of governmental seal of approval, you know. And the idea of someone as stylish as Macron feasting on your baguettes <laughs> every morning, uh, well, that seduces me. So. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and it's amazing that there's that much difference from baguette to baguette because they all have to have the same very few ingredients, right? Yeah, but then I suppose it's a good the baguette is a good poster boy for artisanship. You know, it's all about the flick of the wrist and the use of the fingers and whatnot and the, you know how it's all about the finish and how it's put together, I suppose. And you know, baguette, yeah. baguettes have been produced there for so long that people pick up tiny little tricks that it's it's like being a sports person isn't it you 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 make tiny adjustments to just get that competitive edge and thus it is with food as well and particularly yeah. somewhere like like France where they where they take it so 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 seriously and you know for all of our benefit yes absolutely well continuing on the bread theme my favorite bread has always been pumpernickel <laughs> but I, 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 I didn't realize that it was such a long process yeah. uh, to, to, to make it. Can you talk a little bit about German pumpernickel? And, and it's interesting to me, nobody knows where that word comes from, right? No, no. Well, I, yeah, well, we've, we've covered that in the magazine. And, um, you know, pumpernickel is, I, I, it's, it's a very dense, you know, and it's a dense and heavy bread. Um, and it's been, it's been sort of, baked in Germany since 1570 and uh, you know there's it's got very like like the baguette's got a very simple list of ingredients you know just just rye and water and a slice of pumpernickel to start the fermentation but 
Because um, it's a sourdough. Because it's a sourdough, and it's a sort of—I almost think of it as a kind of as an animal, really. <laughs> it's a kind of <laughs> living, breathing thing, and it—it just—it's—it's just a process. Some of the best, uh, some of the best foods in the world, you know, what you're tasting is someone's almost unbelievable toil, you know. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I don't well, know if that makes fact- sorry after you. The, the fact that, that it takes 24 hours yeah, yeah. Uh, for this to slowly, slowly bake. I had no idea any bread could take that long to bake. No, yeah, I know. But, but, but you know, the end results are so dense that perhaps it's not so surprising. Well, rye bread is all, always <laughs> dense. But it really, I went through a little phase of eating it in the mornings during lockdown and eating rye breads in the mornings. And I found it would just... Mm. Uh, it just set me up for the day and I, I would eat less as the day went on and I lost a bit of weight, which which you wouldn't associate with rye bread, you know. That isn't why, right. I, I, that's not why I did it. I did it because it tastes nice, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, 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 but it's, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you on pumpernickel. I think it's <laughs> well, underrated, you know. Absolutely. Well, well, the book is called Food Journeys. And for decades, one of the classic food journey that people would take was to the fish market in Tokyo. I went to the old one. I've never been to the new one. And I had no idea. Now it's on a, an island in the middle of, of Tokyo Harbor. Can you can you talk a little bit about about the new market? Well, I think I think the idea to move it was because I said I haven't been to the old one, so you'll tell me if I'm wrong. But it was a very, ah, okay. It was a very chaotic experience. I'm told it was. And they it think- was fun. Well, chaos chaos can be fun, can't it? You know, but uh, I think they wanted to make it a bit more of a spectacle. And these days, it's on this island, which is a a human-made island. And you, um, I mean, what what one does is one enters a ticket lottery, and if one's lucky enough to have their name pulled, and you get to go on the uh, on the second floor viewing deck, and you get to watch these massive yellowfin tunas being brought in and auctioned and you know, auctioned in a blink of an eye. Suddenly, you know, you, it's very hard to tell what's going on, but it's 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 hypnotic. Apparently, one of my writers right. is just fish prepared. the size of a car. Fish, I mean, it, yeah, it really yeah. is astounding but, how big these fish are. But I think what's really good about it, and one of my writers has just been, and I, I compared notes with him, and he said, that is is that the, the minute it's over, you know, the people who buy who are buying these fish are the the restaurateurs and the chefs, and then right. and then you you watch the auction happen, and then you go and you eat the results you go and you know you go and eat sushi or unagi or you know things like that in in the restaurants surrounding it and you're gonna you get that sense of how fresh the fish is and you've been you've been part of a process that starts with you observing chaos and finishes with you sat very happily in a restaurant eating exquisite sushi you know so that's a yeah that's a classic culinary tourism experience i think and I'm, je- I'm jealous you went to the old one. You know, I would have loved to have done that. Well, it was really fun because it was surrounded by sushi restaurants. Mm. So, you know, you're jet lagged yeah. when you get to <laughs> Tokyo. You're up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. anyway. And so you would just go to the fish market and then you'd have sushi for breakfast. What could be better? Yeah, it's uh, I was also. Place. Yeah, I was also really pleased that you named Fez as a cultural capital or culinary capital, I should say. I I always tell people if they're going to Morocco, don't skip Fez. It's my favorite part of Morocco. But why do you think it's the culinary capital of that country? Well, you know, and I I have to acknowledge, although we've made these recommendations, you know, there will always be people who um, 
disagree. disagree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I think anyone who's fan of Morocco of Marrakesh will have strong words for us. But Fez is a bewildering array of alleyways and dead ends, and you know, it's it's an impossible place to not get lost in. A bit like right. Venice, and you know, mm. places where you get lost, it, it sort of means you end up finding you know, these hidden gems that people talk about. If you want to find a load of hidden gems, go somewhere where you get lost because you're bound to find them. But, they're, you know, it, it's got all the things that Morocco does well. It's got mint tea. It's got Raz al the spice. It's got, you know, aubergines and, and tomatoes, the wonderful stews, you know. And, and I suppose the, the team are arguing that um, Fez is tagines, and I love tagines, you know, the – uh, Fez's tagines are sort of the, the most complex you'll find anywhere, you know. And, mm. and a tagine is a is a complex flavored dish wherever you get it. But anywhere that that, that claims to have the best is worth checking out. But, um, right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, you also have a lot of lists. Yeah. You you count down the best street markets in the world. Uh, uh, where where are some of your favorites for for just where you go and you're outdoors and there are all kinds of vendors and you just graze? Oh well, I mean, I, I don't want to be a bit too Morocco centric here, but I mean, I just love I love the markets of Morocco. I love the spices. I love seeing the big pyramids of spice. You know that. That yeah. always does it for me. And we meant there's one in the top 10 list, actually. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about my own country, but there's one called Maltby Street in, in England. And that that really is a kind of, it's been a, a hot spring of creativity. It's not just the markets, but it's the restaurants that have sprung up around it. And that often happens when you've got a good market, like you've hinted at with Japan. You know, when you've got a good market, the restaurants follow suit, you know. But looking yeah. at our top 10 list, I mean, the one one I really would like to try I mean, I would love to go to Castries Market in St. Lucia as well and, you know, mm. just, just eat all the hot pepper sauce and, uh, you know, right. the, the rotis and, uh, you know. So there's ones I like and ones that I, I'm pretty sure I will like. Yeah. Now, you also go deeply into food, uh, wa- uh, drink, I should mm. say. Yeah. And you have you have kind of a stunt list uh, <laughs> with <laughs> the world's most uh, expensive cocktails. I think that there's one in Tokyo that comes with a diamond in it, which I would think if you drank that diamond, you could do bad internal damage, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, there's been a over the last twenty years, there's been a spate of these. I remember when I was in the um, the Seven Star Hotel in Dubai. And they had a cocktail that was forty-eight. I think it was forty-eight thousand pounds. It cost a drink, and it was oh my goodness! It was full of really, really rare spirits and really uh, and gold leaf. You know, I mean, uh, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'll be making a beeline for those cocktails. But you, <laughs> you've got to allow yourself a couple of frivolous lists, haven't you? I think <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess that that leads to the question: Was it harder to come up with these five hundred journeys? Or to say, up, this one doesn't make the list. Well, it's a bit, when you've got, a like, we never start from scratch with these things. You know, we've got a team who are foodie to their fingertips. So they're not starting from the the beginning. And then it's about consensus, really. I think I had a a magazine for Nat Geo um, called uh, Food by National Geographic Traveler. And it was very pleasing that a lot of the things we've covered over the years you know also cropped up in this book which means there are some things it's just easy to have a consensus over you know Mm. i mean i mean bologna uh paris 
you know, the fast food of soul, and you know, um, things that you, you know, gave a lot of love to my my hometown of New York City. I was happy well, to see that. Yeah, but you see, that's a no brainer, isn't it? Because we all right. know. But but then the stuff that isn't so well known, like the. Um, well, like, you know, like the barbecue culture of North Carolina. Now, I've only known about that for a year. We did a feature on it, and then it was in the book as well. Well, that's because you're British. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, but, well, this is it. But this is the kind – I mean, I know you probably knew about it, but I didn't. And yeah. it's, it's these kind of things that, uh, you know, they bubble up, and, and it's, it's easy to have a, have a consensus about them because they look they look so good, you know. Some of, yeah. the, some of the more obscure things, I suppose, you know, may, may have may have come down to a coin Well, toss. like, like uh, speaking of obscure, Cape Malay cuisine in South Africa. I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to South Africa, but I, and I've always wanted to go. Mostly I want to see the places where Nelson Mandela walked oh, and, and learn about apartheid and all of that because I read so many of the books about that. Uh, but now I want to also go and eat? Well, I mean, South Africa is a really, truly underrated food destination. I mean, it, it, it's it's complicated history. Places with complicated histories, you know, often have very complicated cuisines. And that is, yeah. that's a silver lining, I suppose. But, you know, I mean, one of my favorite dishes is bunny chow, which is kind of like curried meat in a bread, in a kind of, it's housed in a little square of bread. It's the most delicious huh. thing, and it's just—it's just so nice. And the wines and stuff. Is it—is it rabbit, or is it just called? No, bunny no, cow? it's just called. It's just one of those uh, <laughs> odd, oddly named things. It's, it tends to be right. sort of, uh, you know, more traditional meats, but it's—it really is wonderful. And you know, uh, one of the recipes we include actually, because um, there's a little smattering of recipes throughout the book, and they're all quite simple. But one of them I noticed very appropriate to this time of year was pumpkin fritters from South Africa and they're slightly oh. sweet and you know I never would have never would have thought of South Africa as the kind of place to do anything with pumpkins but there you go it's right. it's a learning experience flicking through a book like this even for someone who, who does who does our jobs you know well it's another one of Nat Geo's wonderful books to dream on uh, looking at the gorgeous photos and learning about foods all around the world is is a true delight it's just something you you lie down on the couch with and look up and an hour has passed. Yeah. And, and you're very you're very content. Thank you so much uh, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's show. We will see you next week. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable